Well, good morning, and we are, I'm switching hats now I'm into preaching mode. So Lloyd last week started off on a, on a four-week series, which we've just begun, talking about what does it mean to be a vineyard church. Now, straight away, it feels very navel-gazy, doesn't it, to sort of talk about ourselves and think about ourselves in this way. But hopefully I can, um, hopefully I can show that it's, it's useful. So if you get the e-news, you'll have already heard um, some of my thoughts on this already, but for the sake of, of anyone who has missed that, um, like I said last week, Lloyd told the story of the vineyard. He reminded us of the way that God's sort of been shaping us as a people, shaping us as a global family of churches for the last 50 years. Um, <clears throat> and he showed how the vineyard church tradition um, traces its history back into, into earlier church movements, particularly the Quaker Church and the Pentecostal Church. So those two strong kind of roots within the within the vineyard today, Pentecostalism and Quakerism, which you wouldn't normally put together. They're they're kind of quite strange company. But um, but there you go, the vineyard was born out of that soup. <laughs> um, so Quakers, if you know anything about them, they trace themselves back even further to sort of the Radical Reformation in the UK um, and the whole dissenting church. Um, so they had an interesting history in their own. Um, whereas Pentecostals trace back, I guess, to John Wesley, broadly, um, and to the Great Awakening and some of those, those movements in church history. And then, of course, if we go back even further, you know, the, the, the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, um, he sort of looms large over the whole story of, of Protestant church history. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and particularly in the life of John Wesley, uh, John Wesley was sort of just a a copycat, really, of Luther's ideas. He just put them into practice in quite a special way, but um, he didn't really bring a new message. But even Luther, you know, Luther didn't appear out of nowhere. He didn't drop out of heaven or crawl out of the ground. <laughs> he, he came from a context, and, and scholars of, of evangelical theology and history have shown that there's kind of a thread you can trace back through Wesley and Luther, and it goes all the way back to people like Augustine and um, this sort of theological emphasis of evangelicalism. And Lloyd mentioned last week that's become a dirty word, evangelical, um, but it's sort of, if we detach it from its North American context, evangelicalism is a, is a kind of outlook and a kind of way of, of practicing Christianity, which they say, you know, goes all the way back to Augustine and that whole Mediterranean early church Christian context. So, so we're really part of a big story. We're part of this bigger story which began in Jerusalem and has been radiating out into the world. Now, is this important to know or is this just trivia? You know, do, do, you, do you need to know this stuff about church history? Um, is it the kind of thing you come to church on a Sunday to hear, uh, to be inspired by um, trivia about church history? Does it really matter? You might be asking. Well, as far as I see it, um, I think it depends largely on how you think of God's work in history, how you think about the way God works. So if you think that um, God's hand has been over church history, if you think God has been moving you know, generation by generation through church history, forming the church, then I think it does matter. Um, but if you think it's just a, a sort of random outcome of random events through history, um, just um, historical forces and cultural forces which produced all these different church movements, you know, if you think more the latter, um, then you'll probably think of churches and church denominations as just sort of either unfortunate things or accidents of history, 
things which, um, yeah, which didn't need to be but just happened to be. And in that context, in that way of thinking, you'll, whether you are consciously doing it or not, you'll probably start to think uh, around why you choose a church, why you belong to this church and not that church, why you worship in this way and not that way. You'll think of that as sort of an accident as well, just, a, just something which happened and maybe even something which you just are searching for a church which is culturally agreeable, a church which you know gets you and you get it, if that's the attitude you might have. Um, and in that sense, there's not really any need to explore church history. You know, it's kind of a, it is trivia. It's sort of, I don't even, it's not even useful for pub quizzes because how many times at a pub quiz do they ask a question about church history? I don't think they ever do. So why bother learning all that stuff? But, but, <laughs> if you think that God has been involved in church history, if you think that God's hand has sovereignly been at work in the last 2,000 years of the life of his people, if you believe that, and if you believe that he has been involved in bringing these different movements out and bringing these different traditions and denominations and families out into existence, then learning the story of your particular church denomination, your family, your tribe, your movement is going to be important to you because what you're doing is you're familiarizing yourself with God's story, with the, with the work that he's already been doing and the work which has come before you and help you to understand what to do now. I've been teaching um, at Vineyard College for the last few years and teaching a class called God's Story, Our Story. And it's a class where we look at the whole Bible from Genesis right through to Revelation. And we study it as a, as a big story, as a, as a grand narrative um, that 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 has different movements and acts, and then we find ourselves kind of caught up in the end. That's where it becomes our story. And, and in that course, we use a, an analogy from N.T. Wright, um, who imagines this scenario where, imagine um, in London somewhere, um, there's a building which is being demolished, and somewhere in a dusty attic, they find this manuscript of a genuine work of Shakespeare, a lost work of Shakespeare, and they, they uncover this 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 document, um, and it's got it's a five-act play, but the last act has been kind of moth-eaten and fallen away and crumbling. So they take it, the preservationists take it, and they, they bring it, and they turn it into PDFs, and they, what do they do with it? They give it to the Royal Shakespearean Company, and they say, turn this into a play. We've found a lost work of Shakespeare. And so they give it to these trained actors who begin to read this play and they look at what happens in act one and they look at the characters and they trace the storylines and they d develop them, you know, they see how Shakespeare's developed the plots and they, and they begin to think, how could we make this, how could we bring this to stage? How could we perform this play? But the last, the last act is all gone, you know, it's, it's lost. So they then have to, you know, with writers and directors have to think about how do we bring this play to its conclusion? What's the best way to be faithful to this play which we've found to, to sort of play it as Shakespeare would play it? Um, well, the best thing we can do is to really study and really get into the minds of these characters in Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and Act 4 so that we can then improvise. We know how it ends. The last page of the play is there, but everything in Act 5 is kind of crumpled away apart from the last few pages, so we know how it ends. We need to get from the end of the manuscript to that part. And the best way to do it is to, yeah, is to know our characters, 
and then to begin to improvise faithfully to each of those characters to perform the last act of that play. Hopefully you can see the connection there, that he's connecting with our story, with God's story. Faithfully playing our part means knowing what's come before. It means really getting into the, to the minds and into the hearts of, of that which has come before so we can understand the story so well that we can just naturally respond and improvise in a way that's, that rhymes, if you like, that rhymes back with what's come before. You know, you wouldn't want the Shakespearean actors to just get to the end of the manuscript and then start parroting lines from Act 2 or Act 3. You'd want them to develop lines. You'd want them to have new lines. So with us, we are not just parroting the past. We're not just parroting the past of church history. We're not parroting the past of different parts of what God's doing. We're trying to find our place and our part of God's story. So here we are in the vineyard what the heck is the vineyard? Um, <laughs> it's a question that, believe it or not, vineyard pastors are still asking themselves. Um, you think that they would know, you know, why, why are we here? Why are we not Anglicans? Why are we not Eastern Orthodox? Why are we not Roman Catholics? Why, why are we here? Why did God make us? <laughs> um, and why are you here? Why have you become part of this movement of churches? You know, maybe if you're really honest, um, and you don't have to raise your hand. Um, it might be the reason you're here is just habit. You know, you're just here because this is just where you've always been, and it's just the way it is. Um, friendships and a sense of connection—that's what keeps you in the vineyard. It's not because you're like have gone through the statement of faith and you've got out your highlighter and you've said, "Yeah, this is the one for me." No, you've just you've just sort of bumbled your way into the vineyard. That's fine, and that's important too. All of those things are important. But I suspect that you know, even within your story, even within your journey in the vineyard, there is something deeper. Maybe something that you haven't always taken the time to give language to, but there's something deeper. There's something magnetic that's sort of pulling you in, and there's something which is resonating inside you in a way that you maybe don't even have words for. Last week, um, Lloyd told his story of discovering the vineyard. Oh, yeah. Sorry about the slides. Uh, I put in very little effort to the slides, but I put in lots of effort to my thinking, okay? <laughs> Just, yeah, there, there's a title slide. There's going to be some scripture up there as well and a cool diagram, but there's nothing very interesting to look at. You just have to bear with me. So, yeah, last week Lloyd told his story, like a very personal story of, of discovering the vineyard and sort of his experience of realizing, like, oh, this is, this is who I've always been. This is this is us, this is me, uh, you know, bumping into the vineyard and realizing this is it, this is, this is what I've been searching for. And, you know, it's actually probably a pretty common story. I think a lot of us probably have that story of a sense of homecoming when we come to the vineyard, a sense of like, I feel like I've been here before. I feel like there's sort of a familiarity to this expression of church. I just, I feel like I'm home really straight away. It's a very common um, story, a sense of being reunited with, with your lost family. So anyway, let's presume that God has been working across history. Let's presume that God has been working through the history of the church and writing this global story of salvation from Jesus up to today. He's been the one who's been writing it with us, but he's been in it. Well, a mere 50 years ago, man, we're so young on the church history scene. A mere 50 years ago, God decided to give the world and to give the church the vineyard and Lloyd covered that story last week, but, but we have to ask, you know, why did God do that? Why did God 
give the world and give the church the vineyard? Why has he brought us together to express the faith as we express it? Why did he do that? And, you know, in our, our, our way of following Jesus, in our particularly vineyardy way, to mangle the English language. What did, why did he do that? You know, or even if you want to be more specific, why did God bring us together to express our faith in our urban vineyardy way? <laughs> why is he doing that? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, just for a moment. This is Paul, and he's not talking about the vineyard. <laughs> he's talking about a local church congregation, but I think there's something here for us. This is Paul. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every, every one, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, I know that Paul was writing, like I said, to a local congregation. Um, and it was a local congregation that was rife with, you know, factions and, and um, 
and division with, with one group following one person and another group following another person. So he's writing to the Corinthians. But I believe that he would write the very same thing, maybe, today, if he were speaking to the global church. I think he would write something very similar, at least. He would remind us that we are all one body, while at the same time reminding us that we are not all the same. When one part of the church is working at its best, when working as it should, the whole body rejoices. When the hand or the foot is doing well, the whole body benefits. So it is with various church families and traditions that are operating today. When one part suffers, every part suffers with it. When one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. At least that's how it should be, I think. So while it may seem, you know, like too much navel-gazing to, to consider what it means to be vineyard, I'm pretty convinced that God's called us to, you know, God's called us to be thoroughly vineyard, to be as vineyard as we can possibly be. Just as he's called Roman Catholics to be as Roman Catholic as they can be, and Eastern Orthodox to be as Eastern Orthodox as they can be, he's calling each denomination, each flavor, each tradition to be thoroughly and completely who he has made them to be. Just like he makes a hand a hand and an eye an eye. Because each way that God has brought new parts of the church into being has, has been a gift. It's been a gift to the church. It's, it's, he's given each part of the church a special charism, a special gift, a special quality for them to look after, for them to protect and steward and offer to the whole world and to the church. So when we care for the gift that God has given us as urban vineyard people, you know, we all do well. Everyone does well when we are doing well. And it's not about being better than anyone else or being right and everyone else being wrong. It's about acknowledging God's made us vineyard. Let's be vineyard. Let's discover what that means. So with that in mind, we might <coughs> or should ask really, what does it mean to be vineyard again? And, you know, again, as I mentioned in the Air News, you know, at one level to be vineyard means that we just recognize similar values within each other and, and we, we recognize and cherish those different values, you know. And I mentioned some of them in the email, but, you know, for the time remaining this morning, I just want to focus primarily on, on one of our, I think, one of our core values as, as a vineyard. One of the things which God has given us and said, please look after this. Don't let this diminish. And that's our value for seeking the presence of God. So, you know, as Lloyd reminded us last week, we are a people who seek God's presence. Um, we live in this promise that his presence will go with us and he'll give us rest. And that language comes straight from Exodus 33. Um, and it's such a beautiful part of scripture, I thought it'd be worthwhile just looking at it briefly in a little more context. So for, for some context, Moses is interceding for Israel um, God has seemingly dismissed them and said, look, you guys go to the promised land on your own. I'm done with you. Um, because they refuse to give up their idols. And Moses and the people are you know, deeply, deeply disturbed at, at, at hearing this. And so Moses um, enters into this dialogue with God, this very bold dialogue with God in the tent of meeting. And this is what it says in, in Exodus 33, um, starting from verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom to, you've not let me know whom you will send with me. 
You've said, I know you by name, and you've found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And God did just that if you read on. So what is it about God's presence which is so significant for Moses? Um, Well, it was more than just a warm feeling for Moses. It was more than just a sense of comfort and um, peace. The big clue is in that word, rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Does anyone remember the first mention of rest in the Bible? Bible trivia moment. Genesis, yeah, that's right. Chapter chapter one. Yeah. So well, chapter two technically, but sort of belongs in chapter one. Um, it says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing, and on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Uh, and then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So rest is right there at the beginning in creation. And um we talked about this a little bit last year, but let me just go through it. Briefly, John Walton has pointed out, you know, that uh, that this theme of the establishment of God's presence on the earth is the, you know, uh, the primary theme of of the Bible. It's the primary theme which holds the whole story together, that progresses the story through the Old Testament all the way through to the New, and links all of the theology together. This establishment of God's presence is the story. He notes that, you know, this theme, like we've pointed out, is inaugurated in the opening chapter of, of Genesis with the story of, Jesus, uh, of God taking up his rest in this temple which he's created, this garden cosmic temple called creation. You know, and we modern readers tend to miss it. We, we, we get a little distracted by scientific questions or um, we're just not really, we're just not sensitive to those words so much. Um, what's aware and uh, involved in divine rest or what such a phrase might have meant to an ancient person, to an ancient Israelite. Um, So just in short, God's rest is not a sign of him being exhausted, being worn out and tired from all the work of creation. It's a sign of his victory in establishing order in creation. So when when the king enters his rest, it means that he has vanquished all of his enemies and he he enters into rest in his temple. So... um, in, in the Genesis account, that's what we see. God rests and takes up his home in, e- in Eden. And he places his icons, Adam and Eve, these images of him in the center of Eden to reflect back praise to him and to reflect glory and praise out to creation. But, you know, as the story goes, um, the, through their disobedience, um, the, the people um, attempt to sort of supplant God to, to make themselves the source of wisdom to make themselves the source of order. Um, and this ruptures the relationship between God and, and people, God and his creation. 
And the result is they forfeit access to his presence. You know, they're barred from, that, from the garden. So it's, it's really, it's exile from the presence of God is what that story is about. But then very quickly, God begins to reestablish his presence. He, you know, he establishes covenants with Noah and Abraham and, and he creates this mechanism for restoring his presence to his people. Um, so that by the time of the Exodus, you know, the, the reestablishment of God's presence is really made manifest. You know, God's presence comes down and signs and wonders and, and miracles and deliverance. The Torah is given again as a as a as a place where people can encounter the presence of God, where they can meet God, learn how to live in the presence of God and not lose it again. Um, the tabernacle is given as a place, as a site specific for where God's presence will dwell, and that's eventually replaced by the temple. And all of these sites serve as these locations of, of the king's presence, where the king can be found, where the king rules from, the palace of the great king. So these two things run together, presence and the kingly rule of God, presence and the authority and power of the king are always together in scripture. It's always the question, which is that, which is running through everything, about presence, because it's about power. It's about God's rule. So the rest of the story, you know, as you know, revolves around this. Let me move on from this point. I think we all know this. Key thing, though, is that you know, being a people of the presence. Back to the vineyard question. It's not unique to the vineyard, is it? If it's right there all throughout Scripture, then why do we say, you know, the most important thing about being vineyard is that we love the presence of God? Well, the whole Bible is about that. We can't really lay claim to that uniquely, can we? We can't say that's our bit. It's been a hallmark of the people of God ever since Seth began to call on the name of the Lord. So, but in the context of, you know, contemporary church history, the vineyard has has brought something, has certainly brought a distinctive approach when it comes to how this theology of God's presence plays out in our lives and in the context of our gatherings. Um, Lloyd highlighted it a bit last week. He's, he, um, he talked about, you know, he showed some great diagrams that talked about like, where the vineyard sits in terms of our questions of how the kingdom advances. Um, that was helpful. Um, you know, one of the great emphasis, emphases that, that the vineyard has is that we don't seek God's power. Um, a lot of a lot of the time, I don't want to talk about any other church tradition here. I'm not. I'm very conscious of of not wanting to talk badly about anything. But in the vineyard, we seek the presence, not the power of God. So, and that's because we believe, like in this this Israelite conception, this New Testament conception, that the presence and the power go together. They're the same. That they they live together. But we seek the presence of God. Because we believe that in his presence, everything else we need is there. In his presence, we find fullness of joy. In his presence, we find healing. In his presence, we find deliverance. In his presence, that's actually what the whole story has been pointing to the whole time. That's where we want to be, always, is in the presence of God. And sometimes Christians have thought of God as a mechanism for power, as a way to kind of make stuff happen. God becomes like a a channel that they can use to achieve what they want to do in the world. That's when a focus on power takes over from a focus on presence. The focus on presence doesn't negate power. It comes with it. So this insight, um, this insight really shaped the vineyard in its early days. Um, 
it shaped it and it distinguished it. Really, it stood out in its time because of this focus on the presence of God, this pursuit of the presence of God. And, you know, it was, it was such a, um, you know, this emphasis on the presence really is validated, I think, by the fact that God's created this new branch on the family tree. You know, not a better branch, but he has created this new branch. So our emphasis for seeking God's presence is why intimacy and worship is so important to us. It's why, it's why worship is not something we do just to warm up so that we can then get the message, you know. Worship is the main event. It's what, it's what we're here for. Singing is not just a way of, you know, binding us together or anything like that. Singing, is, singing to God is opening our hearts. It's, the, it's, it's what we're here for. It's to, be, it's to encounter God, to encounter his presence, to, to seek his face. Which in Hebrew is the same word for presence. Face and presence is the same word. It's kind of cool. Um, and it also shapes the way we minister to each other. You know, we minister out of this, I, this strong belief that's deep in our bones as vineyard people that, that we are looking for the presence of God wherever we go. Not just on Sundays, but wherever we go, we are people who say, where are you, God? I want to be wherever you are. We're like puppies, like following him around, you know. Um, where is he? I want to be where he is. That's the sort of d- the, the presence that we're seeking. <laughs> Let me illustrate this with a diagram because that's something else the vineyard is famous for. Um, <laughs> okay, this, for those who are in Christchurch, uh, you will have seen this one before from Putty Putman. But here's a classic 4 by 4 diagram. And our question here is, um, how does God establish his presence on earth? Which is exactly the same way of asking, you know, how does the kingdom of God advance? How do people receive divine healing? How does, you know, justice and righteousness work itself out in society and in the world? Um, How do people come to faith? How are demons cast out? All of these questions are about how does God establish his presence? Because when he establishes his presence, all that's thrown in. So on one axis, uh, Hamish, if you don't mind... On one axis, we should have um, uh, divine involvement. It's not working? Okay. Hey. Hallelujah. Um, We have divine involvement, so that ranges from uh, full involvement of God at the top. Uh, God is fully involved in the process of establishing his presence. It's all him right at the top there, 100% him. Or it's 0%. It's, um, you know, it's all human involvement. It's all humans who do the work of establishing justice and righteousness and leading people to faith and casting out demons. It's all kind of up to us. Of course, we're probably not going to be at either of those ends of the spectrum. But um, if we take the category of healing, for instance, and that you know, is such a hallmark of Jesus' ministry, such a hallmark of the vineyard movement, um, some traditions would respond to this question, how, how do people receive healing? You know, and they would give the answer... Well, um, well, that's God's work, not mine. You know, and they might not articulate it in such terms, but um, but they would be, you know, maybe subconsciously operating in this assumption. How do people come to faith? Well, that's God's work. That's not my. That's not my work. God does it sovereignly. You know, He just creates Christians. He heals people when He wants to. Um, he He ends injustice when he's decided that it's time to end so it's a it's sort of all god and um and we just are waiting really for him to do his work 
and sort of in a way it like I said, it might not be articulated in that way, but it, in terms of an operating approach, it feels and looks a lot like God has sort of absconded from his creation. He's sort of way out there. You know, and we, we just kind of live with a bit of an absence of God, and he occasionally will, like, come on down and do something amazing, and then he'll go again. So what would prayer look like and feel like in that sort of scenario? We'd probably pray, you know, um, if someone was sick and they were saying, I'm... You know, I'm sick and I'm, I'm chronically ill. What can I do? You would say, oh, let me pray. You know, God, in your great benevolence, uh, would you, you know, uh, heal this person um, if it be your will? Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, or, you know, keep them safe till they die. Um, amen. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's, well, it's up to God what he does. I just, I guess I'll pray for you, but. You know, what about when it comes to justice? You know, such a tradition might say something like, well, the world out there is going to hell. You know, the, the world out there is, is crazy. Uh, all we need to do is just pray that God will take us away. Um, take us away from it all as soon as possible. We just need to get out of here. Um, because justice, that's God's work. So it's all kind of up to him. He'll work that out. Uh, that's not my problem. So you can see how this theology that's sort of all about God and nothing about us um, it would breed a kind of passivity. It would breed this kind of idea that God's not really going to do anything and I don't really have anything to do with it. But what about on the other end of the spectrum, if you like? Um, what if we believe that the kingdom of God advances primarily through our work rather than through the work of you know, um, God? So again, if we take that scenario of healing, what would prayer look like if we lived in this world where we thought it's really up to us? to do the healing stuff. Like, God may or may not turn up, so we need to kind of make it happen. Um, well, Lloyd mentioned it either uh, last week. You know, he, he talked about the way that traditions that live in this quadrant um, claim, you know, are like, claim your healing. You know, have faith. Just believe. Believe, believe until you're healed. Um, because you need to believe. And if until you believe, nothing's going to happen. So it's all on you to believe. Or alternatively, ah, I prayed for them and they didn't get well. There must be something wrong with me. Uh, I, need to, I need to study more, I need to l be more consecrated, I need to be more anointed, more, more, more. It leads to a kind of treadmill where it's all up to us to make, make stuff happen. Um, and what about when it comes to things like justice? Um, such a theology that's all about us would say, you know, it's entirely up to you and entirely up to me to end, end poverty. It's entirely up to me to end the war. It's entirely up to me to stop climate change and it's entirely up to me to stop the collapse of the biosphere, um, you know, uh, to, to end capitalism. I, I and we, we have to work together to, to make this happen. Um, so get to work, you know, get posting, get, get online and, and start, you know, being a, an activist because it all depends on you. You can see how this is a very exhausting way to live, right? It's a very um, exhausting and and tiresome way of living. Um, such a theology puts so much emphasis on us that we almost um, become worn out very quickly. And I think for you know many Christians, the truth is they switch between these two. They kind of go bing, 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 bing between the two from, from day to day. So they're kind of wearing themselves out living at either extreme. Maybe it's all up to me, or maybe it's just all up to God. I don't know. One day I'm believing it's all up to God. The next day I think maybe it's all up to me. 
you get tired. It's a presenceless theology. It's a theology that doesn't have the presence of God really playing a part. And, um, you know, staying in that place long enough um, where it's all about either all about God's power or all about our power, in the end we, we fall into sort of cynicism, I guess. We fall into like, well, I don't know. <laughs> what, can, what can be done? Um, you know, does God even heal? I don't know. I don't care, really. I mean, bad luck. If someone comes to me and they're, they're sick, I say, oh, man, that sucks. So sorry. You know, that's, that's kind of where you end up when, when you give up on those other two dysfunctional theologies. You end up in like, I don't even know. Um, you know, um, do I, do I want to be involved in what God's doing in the world? Does that genuinely motivate me? Like, do I even really care about the kingdom of God? Um, and it's not so much that you have something that you're a bad person. Like, I think we can all recognize this in our own hearts, right? Um, but it's that you get worn out by, by living in these two very strange and confusing paradigms. And so you withdraw. But the good news is that we don't, we have one square left. Uh, and guess what's in it? Um, as I said earlier, you know, one of the hallmarks of the vineyard is that we don't, we don't seek God's power. We seek his presence because his power and everything else we need is in his presence. Everything the world needs is in his presence. All justice, all of the solutions to climate change, everything is in his presence. That's where it begins. Healing, salvation for your friends and family, all of it is in God's presence. So... The, the fourth option is really to join in with what God, God is doing, is to, be, to acknowledge that it's fully God at work in creating justice. It's fully God's prerogative to, to, to bring salvation. It's totally his sovereign will. And it's totally us involved. It's totally us getting involved and doing the work. So I don't want to preach passivity or throwing your hands up and saying, it's too hard, I can't do it. God, God is fully at work in the world, and he's inviting us to fully get involved and fully participate with him. And I think, you know, that I'm almost done here, but, you know, the, the real intelligence of, of our theology as vineyard people is actually in our practices. You know, the vineyard's only 50 years old. It doesn't really have any theologians. It's so young on the scene. But it's... I'm an intelligent when it comes to the way it does things. Like, it's, it doesn't have screeds of, of um, great books that it's written on the theology of the kingdom. Maybe that's yet to come. But what it does have is a history of intelligent practices that are informed by this, this understanding that God is fully at work in the world and that he is inviting us to fully get involved. Yeah. What makes us vineyard is not that we have new theology, and God forbid we ever have new theology. Um, we don't want new theology, but we do want intelligent practices. So that's what makes us vineyard, I think. Um, it's that we seek to live as much as of our lives in that quadrant of joining in with God, what God is already doing in the world, in all spheres of life, in all aspects of life, seeking his presence. So um, in that case, when your friend comes to you and says they're having a rough time, when your friend comes to you and they are sick, when there's a serious crisis, um, instead of saying, I'm praying for you, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you, and you know, driving away and, and giving a five-second prayer for that person, 
um, we, we say, let me pray for you right now. Let me, let me stop what we're doing and let me pray for you. That's a real embarrassing vineyard thing to do. Um, it happens in cafes. It happens at petrol stations. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real hallmark of who we are because we believe if, if I'm going to pray, if we're going to pray, let's do it now. And, and even other weird stuff that vineyard people do is like they pray with their eyes open. That's creepy, you know, when, you're, when, you, when, when they put their hand on you, that's kind of creepy, and then you close your eyes, and then you open them, and they're staring at you. You're like, oh. Um, well, it's, it's because they're looking. They're praying with their, we, we pray with our eyes open because we're seeking what is God doing. We're looking to see. We're seeking to see the presence of God, and we want to be fully awake to the fact that he's doing stuff and responsive to the fact that he's doing stuff. That's what I mean by our, our practices are really smart. Now, our theology is so taking a long time to catch up to it. And similarly with things like, you know, spiritual warfare, you know, we don't typically uh, go out looking for demons. Um, we don't go demon hunting or anything like that. We just, we worship. Again, we worship because we believe that as we worship, the presence of God comes and things happen in our worship. You know, um, demons are kind of cast out of people in the middle of worship. And I was a kid that was so common and kind of bizarre but there would often be just we'd be singing a song and someone would start screaming and hollering and it was like whoa it's just in the middle of a chorus you know suddenly just the presence of God would would just come and that person would just start manifesting and they'd be re- delivered of a demon or I mean there's there's a story of a friend who we all know um I won't mention his name but um but he he was part of urban and he one time during worship, you know, we were just worshiping. He had he had scars all over his arms because he had, he had cut himself, you know, when he was in prison, and um, just in the middle of worship, all of his scars just disappeared. He had like brand new baby skin. He didn't ask for it. There was no prophetic word for healing. There was no invitation for those who have scars to come and get healed. It was just in the worship as we were welcoming the presence of God, his his arms were healed. I love that. I think that's I think that's really tells us so much about what it means to be to be vineyard, and that's really my hope for us, I guess, as a church, is that is that we would always be people who are seeking the presence of God, not just on Sundays, not just when we say, okay, I've done my talk, now I'll stand and wait on God. Like that's not just the bit that we're seeking the presence of God, and we want the presence in, in everything, and we want the presence to be part of our our relationships. Yeah. My hope is that that would be what we'd be famous for, that that urban vineyard would be a place where people go, I know they'll pray for me. I know they will pray for me, like, and they'll stay with me and they'll keep praying for me and they'll ask me, how's it going? Is anything happening? No? Okay, well, well let's keep praying. Or, or okay, well, let's go have a cup of tea and let's talk about it and let's pray again tomorrow. That would be what we're like. We'd be people who, who really commit to this, you know, to joining in with what God's doing, acknowledging that we have a part to play. And that would be, yeah, we'd be famous amongst our family and friends for being those weirdos who, who lay hands on you when you have a problem. Because when people have a problem, they don't care at that point. If you really have a problem, if you're really desperate, if you're sick, if your child is sick, if, you, if your marriage is falling apart, you don't care. You don't look for sophistication. You want, you want help. That's, those are the kinds of people we want to be running to. And that's the kind of life that we want to live, isn't it? where we say, Lord, more of your presence. Bring your presence to this person. Yeah. 
So that's my prayer. It would be kind of people who pray with their eyes open, look around to see opportunities. And I think in many respects that is what it means to be a vineyard. That's, it's still, I don't know if I've done a very good job of articulating it. It seems like we circle around it a lot. But that we would be kind of people who, um, who look after that treasure, who never let go of that treasure.